We're still in Romans chapter 5. We may be in Romans chapter 5 until the end of time. (laughs) Romans chapter 5, verse number 6 this morning. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And once again, we just praise you for this wonderful book of Romans. And I pray today, Lord, for help. I pray that you guide and direct us. We try to think about what it has to say for us today. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, fill me and that I might preach clearly and accurately and practically. And fill us all that we might hear and receive your word and learn from it and be changed by it. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work today, that the Lord Jesus would get the glory. And I pray, Father, that you keep me from saying anything I ought not, and help me to say anything I should as as boldly and clearly as I can. So bless the day. Bless the message. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I I do realize that we have been in Romans chapter 5 now for, I think, three weeks. matter of fact, we've been in this little section of Romans chapter 5 for three weeks. But there's just so much here. Think about what we've learned so far. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at verse number one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we not rejoice at that? How how could I have skipped that one? We had to talk about that one. How do we not rejoice at the truth? Peace with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And then we looked at verses three through four, and we saw that it answers the question of why do Christians suffer? A question which is on all of our hearts and minds. And we could not have ignored that particular one. And then we look at verse 8. Can't skip verse 8. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't skip that. We had to talk about that. And we learned there that Christ died for us because we were helpless and there was no other way. And he died to demonstrate God's love for us. How do we not rejoice at truth like that? How do we not talk about it? It's good stuff. Well, today I want us to look at verse number 9. Verse number nine, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, we learned some things in those those first lessons. Uh, We learned that justification by faith brings peace with God, access to God and hope in a future with God. And that was one of the benefits of being justified by faith. We also learned that justification by faith gives us assurance that God is working our lives and even in the midst of suffering. Builds into his perseverance and character and hope. And then we also learned in verse number 8 that Christ died for us as our substitute. That's such an important truth. And in so dying, he demonstrates forever God's love for us. So what can we learn from this particular verse, from verse number 9? Can we learn something of equal import, of equal relevance and value to us? Well, I think so. Because this verse also answers another question, which is on many minds and hearts. I've had people ask me this question. Saved? Yes. But saved from what? A lot of people wonder that when we use these words as Christians. I'm saved. Are you saved? From what? What are you talking about? What do I need to be saved from? 
And that's what I want us to talk about here in verse number nine this morning, because I believe that it answers the question. Now, before I, I really get into that, though, there's a little sidelight I want to talk about. We've also there's another thing we've been finding in Romans. that's interesting, and that's words. There are some really, really important Bible words that uh, come to us in Romans. And there's another one here that I want us to look about, look at before we get into really answering our question for the day. Uh, we, we have learned some good words, haven't we? And I know your eyes glaze over when I mention some of these words, but the fact these are important words. You need to understand these. All Christians need to understand these words. And if you don't like them, you need to slap yourself and say, I need to like that. These are good words. For example, the word propitiation. Now, how many of you have learned to like the word propitiation? You should by now. You should love that word. That's a great word. And it's one of the most important words we're going to find in the book of Romans. Propitiation. It's a big word with an even bigger meaning. Paul said, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith in Romans chapter 3. Remember what it means? It means satisfaction. It means atonement. Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God, made atonement for my sin and yours. And so, therefore, no further sacrifice for sin is needed because God is satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. Nothing further needs to be done with respect to my sin because Christ's sacrifice, Christ's death atoned for it, covered it completely. His blood, His death is the propitiation for my sins. Now, you need to fall in love with that word. That's a good word. And there's another word we've learned. It's the word justification. That's like, you can't even read Romans without thinking about the word justification. It's like a key word. In Romans, it's mentioned in the key verses of the letter in verses uh, chapter one, verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just, the justified shall live by faith. Justification is a legal term. We learned that it means declared righteous. Uh, there's the little pithy uh, definition that you hear all the time that it means that you are just as if you had never sinned. But that's something that takes place. It's a declaration that takes place in the mind of the judge. And in this case, that judge is God. When we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we are born again, uh, when we are saved, we are declared righteous just as if we had never sinned in the first place. And we learned here that we're justified by faith, not works. Not by keeping the law, only by faith. This is, this is a grand theme in the book of Romans. Justification. And then there was another word. Imputation. Imputation. And boy, you ought to see you guys' faces. Your, your faces are hilarious. You just are really enjoying these words. Imputation. Anybody remember what imputation is? Uh, we read about that in chapter 4. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Romans chapter 4, verses 8 and 23 and 24. We learned that imputation is an accounting term. It means credited to the account of. It was a theme in chapter 4. Paul returned to it in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. I was going to read that this morning, but Don beat me to it and read it during the, during the communion time. But the whole thing he's talking about there is imputation. Imputation. We see that Adam's sin was imputed to us, credited to our account. 
we see that our sin was imputed to Christ, credited to his account on the cross. And we see that once it was taken care of there, his righteousness was imputed to us, credited to us. Another great word. You like those words? How many of you like those words? All right, you're all lying to me. Well, here's another good one. Here's another good one. And I want us to notice this one. This is a great word, too. Look at verses 10, or verse number 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's the word. Reconciled or reconciliation. Here's what it means. It means that the relationship is restored. One man said reconciliation is the removal of enmity that stands between people and God. Reconciliation is the basis of restored fellowship between people and God. And we learn here from Paul that when we trust Christ, we are reconciled. Our relationship is restored. When a couple is separated or divorced and they get back together, they are said to have reconciled because the relationship is restored. And that's what has happened with us. Think about it. We were friends with God in the Garden of Eden. Mankind was. Before the fall, God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve just like a friend. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that an amazing picture? Think about the relationship that was there. They were friends. And then sin entered the picture. They became enemies. The walking together in the garden stopped. Adam and Eve found themselves fleeing from and hiding from God. And God expelled them from the garden and judged their sin. And from that moment, a state of enmity and warfare, and we've talked about this a couple of times throughout this study, enmity existed between mankind and God. And then Christ died on the cross. And in Christ, Paul says, we are reconciled. And our relationship is restored. Now Jesus says, and no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. I don't know about you, but I think that's a great word. Reconciled. I think it's a wonderful truth. Reconciliation. It's mentioned all throughout our New Testament. Second Corinthians, Paul said, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He said it in Colossians chapter 1, It pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. He said it in Ephesians, He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Another good word. You should love that word. Circle it in your Bible. It's a good word. Well, we'll move off that. Now let's go back to our main topic. Our main topic is... Uh, what are we saved from? We're saved. What are we saved from? Notice our text again is verse number 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? Wrath through him. And so let's think about that for just a moment. It tells us what we're saved from. We're saved from wrath. As I thought about this particular verse and I thought about this particular word, 
I thought, you know what, I believe there's actually two different ways that we would apply that, two different ways that we would interpret that verse. We are saved from wrath. And, and those two ways are this. I believe we are saved from the coming hell on earth. And I believe we are saved from the eternal hell that awaits all those who are lost. That's the wrath that is referred to there. Think about that first one. We are saved from the coming hell on earth. When I was looking at this and I was thinking about this, since uh, Brother Carl is teaching through Revelation, I sent him a note and I said, do you agree with this, that we are saved from both of these things? And he fired back at me immediately. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 10. This is because you have kept my commandment to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And he said, yes, I do believe. That the tribulation is one of the things that is talked about here. And so when I talk about the coming hell on earth, that's what I'm talking about. The tribulation that is to come. There is the rapture of the church, and then thereafter there is the tribulation. The seven-year period of terrible judgment on this earth. And I think one of the things that we are saved from as believers is that. We as Christians need not fear it. We as Christians will not go through it. And I think the verse that, uh, that Carl shared with me is, is, is good evidence of that. I also think the teaching in the Bible on the rapture is good evidence of that because the Bible always teaches that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Uh, we read it so often. First Thessalonians chapter 4, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus shall we, we shall always be with the Lord. The Bible always shows that event occurring before the rapture. The church, those who are saved, the believers, the born again, Christians, will be taken out, caught up, raptured before the tribulation begins. So what are we saved from? Well, one of the things is we're saved from that. And if you're listening to Carl's study on Sunday mornings, you know, it's something we'd like to be saved from. None of us really want to go through that. It's not something that anybody should want to go through. The tribulation is a horrible, horrible, horrible time. I think there's some wonderful Old Testament pictures that back this up. I think the story of Noah, perhaps, is an illustration that we could use to say Christians will not go through the tribulation. You remember the story of Noah and the ark? God said in Genesis chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. He said in Genesis 7:23, he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. See, Noah is an illustration of those of us who are saved, those of us who are justified by faith. And, and as he was saved from the flood, out of the flood, he didn't have to suffer that. He was in the ark where he was safe. And that's a picture of us being in Christ where we are saved. That's one illustration. I think a better one might be Lot. Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. What a great story that is. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 19. You remember the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? They were rife with sin and rife with rebellion against God. God's patience with them was at an end. And he determined they were lost cause and he set out to judge them and destroy them. But you see, there was a problem. God had a problem. And the problem was that Lot lived in Sodom. And Lot was a saved man. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And he was a believer. The Bible says he was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was justified by faith. And so the Lord came down and he knocked on Lot's door one day and he said, Judgment Day had arrived for Sodom and he needed to get out of town. And of course, you know the story. Lot fled the city. 
with his wife and his daughters. And uh, then God poured out fire and brimstone from heaven, and he wiped Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. If you were to stand on the top of Mount Masada today in southern Israel and look down at the southern tip of the Dead Sea, you're looking at where Sodom and Gomorrah one time were. But one thing will be quite clear to you as you stand there and gaze at it. They're not there now. There's no sign of life there at all. Archaeologically, they have found evidence. They know that in that area is where they were. But they're gone. God's judgment was complete. But the interesting part of the story for us this morning is, is something that God said to Lot. As he was trying to get him to leave the city, he was trying to tell him to, you know, you need to get, you go to that other city, get over there, get out of here. And he said this, he said in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 22, I cannot, he said, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. God said to Lot, I can't judge the city until you're out of it. I think that's an astonishing illustration of how we as Christians are protected from the judgment that is to come. I cannot do anything. The judgment can't fall, Lot, until you, a righteous just man, are out of there. And likewise, the tribulation cannot happen until the church, those who are saved, those who are justified by faith, are safely raptured out of the way. I don't think those Old Testament pictures are enough to make the case. I just think they're illustrations. But when you take those and you compare them to our text and to other verses like it, the one that Carl shared with us in Revelation chapter 3 and others, I think it's clear. I think it's clear. The scriptural truth all adds up. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And at least part of that wrath that we're saved from is that coming tribulation. That's seven years of hell on earth. Christians who are saved before it need not fear it and will go through it. But that's not all. There's a worse wrath. And we who are justified by faith are saved from it too. We're saved from the coming hell on earth, but we're also saved from the eternity of hell that God has prepared for those who do not believe. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something that isn't told enough anymore. Half the preachers in pulpits today shy away from it. Some even deny it. One particularly well-known, big-name preacher uh, pretty much has lost his, his mega church as a result of the fact he wrote a book denying its existence. But here's the truth. There is a place called hell. There is a place called hell. The Bible teaches it. I cannot ignore it. We are Friendship Bible Church. We stand on the Bible, and so therefore we're not going to ignore it. We're not going to be like the person who sports the bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, and there, that settles it. That's garbage. God said it. And that settles it. doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. And God said it over and over and over again that there is a hell, a place called hell to be avoided. And you might be sitting here today and you might say, I don't believe that, preacher. And I would say, I'm very sorry to hear that. But it doesn't change things a whit. Not a bit. doesn't matter what you believe. Regardless of what you might be taught in school, kids, reality is not determined by your beliefs. Reality is reality. There is a heaven. There is a hell. God has said it. And if God says hell is real, whose opinion are you going to take over his? I'm going to listen to what he has to say. So there is this place called hell. Let's review very quickly what the Bible says about it so that we make sure we understand it. It is a place. 
It is a place, very real. Always, when it is mentioned in the Bible, it is a literal place. It's not a concept. It's not a state of mind. It's not low self-esteem or any of these other things that some people have taught that it is. It is a place. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that never should be quenched. Everywhere and in every reference, it is referred to as a place. Just like Jerusalem is a place. Just like Bethlehem is a place. Just like heaven is a place, hell is a place. It is a place God has prepared. It is a place He has made. The Bible is clear that He didn't make it for us. He made it for Satan and His angels. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, He will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. A place that God has made. It is a place of torment. We don't like to think about this. It doesn't change the fact that it is. It is a place of torment. In Jesus' account of the rich man and Lazarus, which we can read in Luke chapter 16, we see the rich man died and he went to hell. And from that place, the rich man cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. It's a place of torment. This man desperately hoped that his loved ones would not come there. He wanted someone to get to his brothers and warn them about hell. He said in Luke 16, 28, I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. You hear people sometimes say, I'll choose hell over heaven because all my friends are going to be there. Your friends don't want you there. And you won't want your friends there. It's a place of torment. Specifically, the Bible says, it's a place of flame. Much of our understanding of hell comes from Mark chapter 9 where Jesus gives us some description. Three times in that passage he says that their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark chapter 9 verses 44 and 46 and 48. And of course the passages we just read from Luke 16 tell us this flame. Flame plays in it's a huge part. It's a place of memories. Memories. I have often thought, frankly, that that may be one of the worst parts of hell. The rich man, when he was crying out for deliverance from his torment, he was told, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. Remember. Remember. I think the Bible indicates over and over again that those in hell have their memories intact. And that means they will remember. They will remember every time they sat in a service like this and heard the gospel. They will remember every time a loved one pleaded with them to come to Christ. They will remember every stupid sin and choice that they put ahead of Christ and that kept them away from Him. They will remember. It's a place of memories. It's a place of regret. And that may be redundant with the previous one. I don't know. It may be another way of looking at remembering. I don't know. Jesus in Mark chapter 9 said that hell was a place where their worm does not die. I'm not sure what that means. It might mean that there's worms there. It kind of sounds like that's what it means, doesn't it? Hell's a horrible place. Probably are. Some people say, some commentators say that the fire is the external torment. The worms are the internal torment. And they will apply that to memory and regret. I don't know. I don't know. I believe that there will be regret there. I believe there will be memory. And I think that would be one of the worst things. Hell is a place without hope. 
Dante Alighieri, the Italian poet who wrote the Inferno. It was a poem picturing a, an allegorical trip down through the underworld. Interesting. In that poem, he comes to the place where the entrance to hell is, and he sees a sign written over it, and it says, Through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into eternal pain. Abandon all hope. Ye who enter here. It's a place without hope. No hope. It's a place with no escape. If you read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, it becomes clear. Once in hell, you're not going to get out. There is no escape. Robin Williams, some years ago, starred in a movie. I can't remember the name of this movie. Uh, I remember watching it. It was fascinating in some ways. It, had, it was beautiful to look at. But the story of the movie was uh, that Robin Williams and his wife died. She died first and went to hell. Then he died and went to heaven. Not knowing, of course, she was in hell. Then he discovered she wasn't in heaven. And he determined that heaven wouldn't be good enough for him without his wife. So he, de- he decided to go to hell and get her out and bring her back. And that was the whole story of the, of the movie. Nonsense, of course. Absolutely impossible, of course. There is no getting out of hell once you are there. And again, Luke chapter 16 tells us this. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. There is no moving back and forth. Once you're there, it is a place of no escape. It is a place that is eternal, forever. There's a terrifying description of hell given in the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a description of hell. It's forever. And not just forever. That wasn't a strong enough word. It's forever and ever. It will never end. It is eternal. So hell is real. It's a place. It's terrible. It's a place that God prepared for the devil and his angels. It's a place of torment and flames and memory and regret. It's a place where there is no hope, there is no escape, and there is no end. Why would anybody choose to go there? And you may be saying right now, nobody would. I would certainly never choose it. Pastor, nobody would choose it. And yet the Scripture teaches that those who do not choose Christ, choose hell. It's the default choice. If you have not trusted Christ, that's where you're going. There are only two roads. There are only two choices. There are only two ends, heaven and hell. And if you don't choose heaven, then you are choosing hell. Ah, but remember our text, and this is what's so great. Remember our text. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Those who are justified by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, by his shed blood, are saved from that, are saved from the wrath of hell, and need never worry about it. The saved, the born again, the believing, the Christian, need never fear. They'll never see it. Ever. Listen to it again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Saved from wrath. So there's two, perhaps, answers to the question, what are we saved from? We are saved from God's wrath that will soon be poured out on this earth, the hell that is to come in the tribulation period. 
And we're also saved from his eternal wrath, which is poured out on all those who refuse to trust Christ and die lost. We're saved from hell. So, what about you? What about you? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone as your Savior? Have you come to that place in your life where you saw yourself as lost, recognized that you were lost, a sinner that can't stop sinning, hopeless? Have you seen that? And finding yourself in that place, have you seen the solution? Have you turned your eyes upon Jesus? Have you looked full in his wonderful face? Have you looked to the Lamb of God? Have you believed on the one, the only one, who can save you from that wrath which is to come? You see, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. So have you been? Have you been? You see, if, if your answer to all those questions I just asked is yes, then you're saved from the wrath that is to come. But if your answer to any of them is no, then you are hurtling straight toward it. Why? Why not make it right this morning? Why not fix it right now? Why not come to Jesus and be saved from the wrath that is to come? Why not say yes to the Savior tonight? He's tenderly pleading with thee to come to him now with thy sin-burdened heart for pardon so full and so free. For with you the Spirit will not always plead. Do not reject him tonight. Tomorrow may bring you the darkness of death unbroken by heavenly light. Take Christ as your Savior, then all shall be well. Tomorrow, let bring what it may. His love shall protect you. His Spirit shall guide and safely keep you in his way. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him.